0: Matthew chapter 8, if you will join me over there. Matthew chapter 8, you'll see an allusion to Isaiah's prophecy in the last verse we'll look at this morning. Uh, uh, Matthew chapter 8, again, we've been going through this uh, since January of 2019, so some 15 months now that uh, we've been in this book of Matthew. And guys, I got to tell you, uh, I'm glad that we're in this particular passage this morning, Uh, these four verses. Uh, And I think by the time we finish uh, that you'll realize why I'm glad of all weeks that we would hit this passage, that it is this week that we will do that. And so would you join me? What I want to do is jump right into the text. Uh, We are flowing. This is actually, you don't see it necessarily in Matthew's version of this story, but this is all the same day. So My Bible here is printed out in paragraphs, so verses 1 through 4 is an event. Verses 5 through 13 is an event. Verse 14 picks up the same day, okay? It's the same day. It's that afternoon, and then it has some commentary on that evening. Would you join with me looking at verse 14? Let's read through our text today. And so we're picking up where we've left off. Two healings have taken place already in this chapter that followed the Sermon on the Mount. And... When Jesus entered Peter's house, so we want to envision this happening. They're in a city called Capernaum. This is kind of the city that Jesus uses as a headquarters. It's right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This is up in Galilee. It's not down where Jerusalem is in Judea. This is up in Galilee. So verse 14 again. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, one of the other Gospels tells us it's Peter and Andrew's house. But we're quickly going to realize some ladies live there as well. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his, meaning Peter's, mother-in-law lying sick. He sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever, So we don't know if at this point, is she shivering cold? she's she delirious? Uh, I think it was Luke says this is a high fever. So again, is she burning up or is she shivering cold? But this is what Christ encounters when he comes to Peter's house. And they show him and he goes over and he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. What's he going to do? He touched her hand. He touched her Took her by the hand. Another gospel says, raises her up. Here's Matthew's account. This is not a contradictory. It's a complimentary one. Put them all together in what we find. Verse 15. he So he sees her. He touched her hand. And the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Later on, don't you remember that? That she began to serve him. Another... The gospel says that she didn't just serve Jesus only. She served them. Apparently, this woman has a servant spirit. She is able to resume fully right where she left off. Here she has a house full of guests. Verse 16. That evening, that evening, not that afternoon, that evening, they, y'all know who they are, right? They. They say, who's they? They. Verse 16. That evening, they brought to him... Many who were oppressed by demons. They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out, cast out the spirits with a cross and some holy water. Y'all see that in the text, right? Everybody see that? Oh, wait, no, it's not in oh, it's not in the Bible. That's right. It's not with a cross and Holy water. I don't know where those ideas... People love religion. Let's stick to the Bible, verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Watch this. And he cast out the spirits with a word. Jesus, with a word. And healed all who were sick. Again, the other gospels tell us they're bringing many sick. They're bringing many oppressed by demons. there to Peter's house. Now, Matthew does something unique with this. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes us back to a phrase in Isaiah. And Matthew says this, verse 16 was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Why is Jesus doing all of this? It's a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when Isaiah wrote the following. So here's Matthew's translation, again, into the Greek language that we're reading in English, of what Isaiah wrote in the Hebrew language that we have translated into English that we'll see there. So here's Matthew's translation from Isaiah. He. So here's why Jesus did this, according to Matthew it's a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, quote, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew says, you see what he's doing there outside of Peter's house? All that right there, that's a fulfillment of what Isaiah wrote when he wrote, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I want us to notice three things today. Now, the first one, you may say, Jeff, do we even need to really look at it? I'm going to get one shot at verse 14, as far as I know, for my life, preaching to you guys on this. And so I don't want to miss it. I want us to get a couple of very practical things. Point number one this morning does come out of verse 14. Let's look at some hints about a committed disciple. Let's look at some hints because the Bible gives us some hints here about a committed disciple's life. Here in these parts, uh, if you're new to these parts, you give it time. You're going to hear a phrase, all in. Right? Are you all in? Uh, Other parts of our country use that phrase as well, but it's really hot button. Been that way around here for about 10 or 12, 15 years. All in. I think I saw, uh, I drove to Clemson yesterday. I had to go do something. And I think I saw somewhere, there may be like an all-in cafe or all-in diner or all-in coffee shop or something like that. Catch what I'm saying. There are some clues about disciples who are all in, and I mean fully committed Close followers of the Lord. And the one I'm going to use here is Peter. Can we agree here? Peter is all in. Can we agree there? Peter comes under the category of a committed disciple of Christ. He is a close follower. He is a sacrificial follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to notice two main things out of verse 14. The text says, when Jesus entered Peter's house. Number one, write this down. You say, Jeff, seriously, this is not a major thing. Peter had a house. Peter had a house. Why does that matter? Because, Lord willing, I think, if if everything goes normal, and and I'm assuming it will, next week I'm going to be preaching on verses 18 to 22. It's not on the screen. Glance ahead at verse 19. Would you glance ahead at verse 19 if you have your Bible open? That's a good reason to have your Bible open because we don't always uh, have all the verses up on the screen. Look at verse 19. This is what we should be looking at next week. A scribe comes up to Jesus and says to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. I'm ready to be committed. I'm going to be all in. Notice what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, can I read between the lines? Oh, really? Okay, here's something you need to know. Quote, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to follow me? I don't have a house. I don't have anywhere to sleep at night. You're going to come. You're going to be committed. You're going to be all in. You're going to follow close to me? Next verse, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Here's the implication then, and I'm ready to follow you. And Jesus says to him, again, kind of reading between the lines, you know what, if that's your attitude, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Come now, don't come after you, go bury your father. Now, the reason I'm pointing out, and I'm not going to spend long here, I want to plan a thought. Peter had a house. This probably goes to my unique upbringing and things that I've heard and some opinions that I've heard and probably some wrong application of the next week's passage. Because some people can say, if you're really committed, then you'll, you may not have a house. You probably wouldn't have a house. And some have even gone this direction. They see a person who claims to be a Christian who has a nice house. The text doesn't say that Peter has a nice house. It says Peter has a house. But I can make an argument of three or four or five people in the New Testament who by implication have a nice house. And I'm just telling you, there are overly judgmental people who will go into someone else's house that claims to be a Christian and they'll form a, a mental judgment. Like, they must not be a close follower of Christ and have a house like this. Careful, you don't have that right to say that. Peter had a house. Now, by the way, the flip side of that is also true. You don't fall into this trap. Go into someone's house and it's not that nice of a house, comparatively speaking to others in the United States, and assume they must not be a very close follower of Christ or he would have given them a better house. No, we don't have the right to say both of these people can be fully committed followers of Christ. Peter had a house. You say, seriously, Jeff, that's what you brought us here today. Yeah, this is important. Now, let's round this out. Listen, the Lord may call some. The Lord does call some to sell their house and go. Literally, sell everything your house, everything you have, sell your house and go and take the gospel to another part of the world or to another people group. And they should go, but the Lord doesn't call everyone to do that. And the pattern of the New Testament is those who sell and go should be supported by those who don't sell and stay. And so it's not, yeah, you need to sacrifice because you're called to be a missionary. Well, we live a different lifestyle. If we're called to stay and dwell in and live, then we need to be supporting those who sell and go when they are following the call of the Lord. So we've got to be balanced in that. We're all doing the kingdom work. One more thought here under this house thought. This is important. Most of us here have a house. Notice that Peter... Can I say a committed follower, a close follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, uses their resources and their life for the cause of ministry. Did you see that in the text? Before this day is over, what you're going to find is many demon-possessed people, many sick people are coming to Peter's house. What are they doing here? In fact, most experts of the New Testament say that when Jesus was in Capernaum, it appears that he stayed at Peter's house. In other words, Peter's attitude is, "What's mine is yours, Lord. You stay here anytime you need, and anytime ministry needs done in the house, you use my house." Most of us have a house. I got before I go to the next second thought on the first point. If you have a house, how is it being used for ministry? How is it being used for ministry? Ask yourself. Do you have a house? How specifically, do you all know that in the coming days our houses may need to be used for more types of ministry that may be a little bit out of the box than what we're used to thinking? Why did God give us these resources? Not just to have them to ourselves. We're supposed to have an attitude, Lord, use my resource. Listen, do you have an office? Some of us have an office. Now, I can't really use mine as an example because my office is Graceview Church's office. The Lord's work is often done in my office. There were two meetings in there on Tuesday. There was a meeting in there on Wednesday night. Uh, Sunday school meets in there each week, uh, uses my office, and other various meetings take place through the week. But do you have an office? Do you have a vehicle? You say, I have a vehicle. Is your vehicle used for the Lord? Do you have a piece of property? we got to think this way. This is how close followers of Christ, they see their resources being used for the kingdom. Notice secondly Still, just some hints about a committed, close, all in follower of Christ. Verse 14 teaches us this. Two things. Peter had a mother-in-law. So if you have a mother-in-law, what do you have? If you're a man, you also have a you have a wife. So Peter has a wife, not mentioned here, but his wife is mentioned in the New Testament. He has a wife, and okay, once again, you're probably looking at it and say, Jeff, you're stating the obvious the man has a house, the man has a mother-in-law, a man has a wife. What is the point? All right, very quickly. I think this is significant because we need to remember this. Again, I have one shot at this text. There are religions that forbid their followers who desire to go into full-time ministerial vocational work as a lifestyle into the ministry. They forbid them from marrying. I don't know all the various reasons, but apparently the thought is probably something like this. To be single is more godly, it's more holy, it's more pure. You're more dedicated if you are single. And so they literally will say, you can't be married if you're going to get a full-time job in our ministry. Problem. A close follower of Christ is married. In fact, there's evidence that probably all of the apostles are married. And the Lord chose them in that status. And so... Here's the problem with that mentality and making these strict rules and forbidding marriage. Listen carefully. The New Testament exalts singleness. And the New Testament exalts marriage. Each one has an advantage. Both have their own advantages. So you can't just say single one. If you're a close follower of Christ, then you're going to be single. You can't be married. Wrong. Follow the Lord's leading. So... Again, I want to touch on this just for a moment. Some of you are single. There's several of you, quite a few, a good number. I'm looking around. You are single. Can I tell you this? Value your singleness. Value your singleness. That's the teaching of the New Testament. You say, what do you mean? Use your singleness for the glory of God. You probably have more time that you can use giving literally hours of your life to do kingdom work. Don't just, you say, I'm single, I'll get married later on. Don't just use all your youthful energy on yourself and all of your time on yourself. And someday, some way, one day, I'm going to get married and then I'll get serious about serving the Lord. Value your singleness and use it for the glory of God. Many of us are married. What should we do? Listen, value your marriage. Single persons, make sure the Lord calls you to be married. Make sure that is the Lord's will. Really pray about that. Value it while you're single, and as the Lord leads, then you value marriage. And as much as it is in you, you stay married. Let God use your marriage to further his kingdom. And there are things that ways that married people can glorify God that single people can't, ways that single people glorify God that married people can't. Each needs to value, and each needs to honor and use it for the glory of God. Now, very quick, look at verse 14 again. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. This is Peter and Andrew's house. Apparently, Peter's mother-in-law, Peter's wife stays there. We don't know who else. On this occasion, James and John are with them in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to stay there, apparently, as they're in Capernaum. So there's no evidence. I'm not saying this didn't happen. There's no evidence or implication in the New Testament that Peter's wife followed the Lord Jesus on his ministry journeys with the twelve. She may have. I imagine there were surely occasions where she was with them, but there's no implication that she goes with them everywhere. But follow this: what I'm about to say, there is an implication. If you'll hold your spot here, join me. First Corinthians chapter nine. Flip over there. First Corinthians chapter nine. So though she may not have traveled with them on uh, during the Lord's earthly ministry with the twelve, it does appear that she ends up following and going with her husband on his ministry, at least. Some 20 years later when the book of 1 Corinthians and probably has already been doing that for some time. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So our text a while ago does not directly indicate that Peter has a wife just indirectly by the mother-in-law. So 1 Corinthians, look at chapter 9, verse number 5. Here's the setting. Paul, the apostle Paul who is single, is making an argument, a case that he, he is a true apostle And again, I can't go into all the background here. He's showing how sometimes we give up our rights for the cause of Christ and so that others will not be offended. And so what he's making an argument here that as an apostle, he deserves to have his ministry supported financially, but he gave up that right and worked a job while he was in Corinth. But along with that, watch what he writes in verse 5. Do we, so along with getting paid, he says, do we not have the right, do we, including himself, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord. Jesus has at least four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. James and Jude wrote two books in the New Testament. Apparently, they have wives that as they do ministry, those wives go with them, and the church supports them Financially, as them and their wives go on ministry, notice the last word, and Cephas. Verse 5 again, do we, Paul's saying, hey, I don't have a wife, but what if I wanted to? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Simon Peter. He has a, a traveling wife, so here's my point. It appears that Peter's wife traveled with him during his days of ministry And one of the early church followers, and therefore church history, has taught us we know that Peter ends up dying for the cause of Christ. Tradition says he was crucified, and by his own request, he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord. He said, can I be crucified upside down? They obliged that. Do you know the last thing that he saw before he was crucified? He saw his wife being martyred. That's the tradition. The last thing Peter saw is them killing his wife. She became a martyr. They want to make sure Peter sees that. And then he dies himself. And tradition says that he was encouraging his wife to keep focusing on the Lord during her death. So here's a quick thought. Those of us who are married, can I just say this? This isn't everybody. If you and your spouse are Christians, both. You're blessed. Listen to me. You're blessed. If you and your spouse are not just Christians, but both of you serve the Lord together in some capacity, you are extremely blessed. Peter had a house. Peter had a wife. Number two, as we go back to Matthew, would you go back to Matthew? And Now I want us to kind of skip verse 15 for just a little bit, and let's focus on verse 16. Would you notice the second thought this morning? Number two, Jesus is Lord over all devils. Did everybody see that when we read it? Look at verse 16. Here's our thought. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, supreme Lord, has full authority, all power over all devils. Verse 16. Matthew writes, that evening, now we know there's another healing There's been some other healings. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Guys, there's several words in that text, and I don't have time. Like verse 16 is its own message, but I cannot preach one verse at a time anymore like I did some in Sermon on the Mount. We'll never get out of this book, so today we're doing a whopping four. Look at verse 16. You see the first two words. I want to point attention. That evening. So, follow me for a moment. The other gospels, all right, we've got Matthew's version, but we also are going to, if we wanted to, I won't take time, Mark and Luke also give this same account, and we bring in what, when we bring in what they write about this, we get some other additional details about this day. So here's the thought, they affect these two words that evening. Here's the other details. This was a Saturday. The other gospels make it clear, Matthew doesn't. This was a Saturday, and because we're talking about Jews, Saturday was their Sabbath day. Second thing we know from the other Gospels is that because it was Saturday in Capernaum, Jesus taught in their synagogue that day. Jesus taught in the synagogue. It's a Sabbath day. We know there's been a couple of other miraculous healings. The the next thing that we learn In the synagogue, there's a man who is possessed of devils. He has a devil in him. He's possessed of a demon. Jesus cast the demon out of that man in the synagogue. I don't know why he was at the synagogue, but he was. Jesus cast the demon out of this man. Fourth thing we learned, that report of that, this report of what Jesus does in the synagogue, just starts going out through all the region around and as a result, people are going to bring their loved ones or their friends, people they know who are possessed and oppressed by demons, or people who are sick because they've, had, they've seen what's happened with these other two healings. But notice they do it that evening. Now that explains that. Why do they wait till that evening? Because it's Sabbath. And so they have to wait till after the sunset, the sundown. One of the other gospels points out that it was after sundown. And one tradition says they have to be able to see a star or two because any, to do that before that, to carry their loved ones to the Lord Jesus, is to break the Sabbath. And so the idea is they're waiting till just the right moment, and they've been noticing where Jesus is staying. And they go immediately and flood the house of Peter as it's inundated with all of these needy people. Now I want you to look at verse 16. If you were in my place, what would you, if you were limited in time, what would you be preaching on? Let me read it again. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. There's a lot. There's like 11 words there that I looked at this morning that are dominant words. But I want you to focus for a moment on this phrase. Did you catch it? Listen to the Bible. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. Many who were oppressed by demons. I think in a few weeks if the Lord allows us to preach on the end of Matthew 8 I'm going to go into this thought I realize I'm I'm looking at an audience today there's some of you would be like I got my suspicions about somebody I know <laughs> I think I know somebody and I think or you may look and say there's somebody on TV or there's someone in our government I understand that I I've, I've got I think they he she them I think okay I understand you may say I know someone personally do you realize that most of you would probably say, what is going on? I mean, I take the Bible. Literally, that evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And most of you are like, I don't know one person. Maybe we'll look at why you would think that as compared to this in a few weeks. We'll come back to that at another day. Here's my thought this morning. Demons, devils are real. You need to understand that. They are very real. They could be here this morning. I have prayed early this morning that they are not here. I've prayed that they're not allowed to be here all day long. That's in the Lord's hands. You should join me in that request. In fact, I've prayed. I don't know why I do it. I should pray for every day of the week. I always pray that they would not be here on Sunday and that they would not be here on Monday. Just like give us a good window, a good buffer on either side. Lord, don't, don't let them be above. Don't let them, I, I literally go through. I start with this section right here. I go back through that. I like name every room. Lord, and then off the property and the White House and Charlie Drive and that property over there. And, the, and I, I literally, Lord, just make, like, this guy is wacko. No, I believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. These are real beings. Mark this. They're not to be laughed at. They're not to be made fun of. They're not to be toyed with. Young people, listen to what I'm saying here. Please listen. They are real. Don't you be messing around with little games and activities with other young people trying to invite them to reveal themselves. They are real. Don't invite that. Don't play around. Don't toy. Don't hang around people who do that activity. Stop it. That's like an epidemic. We go through times in our in our country where young people, particularly, want to invite. You're opening yourself to things; they're not to be focused on. Don't focus on them. I'm going to talk about them for the next few moments, but we're going to move on, and we're not going to just focus on these real beings. Had a really good friend. I won't say who it is, but he had personal experience. He was possessed of a devil before he became a Christian. And he would talk about this only on, uh, I think, two occasions. I remember pulling out of him some personal information. And each of those two times, I remember he didn't really like talking about it. And finally, he just said, I don't like to give him any airtime. I just don't like to talk about him. Let's, let's talk about something else. It was real. I mean, he had details. And of course, I'm young and dumb and want to know all these. Oh, tell me about your person. He's like, let's, let's just don't even talk about them. They're real. Don't laugh and mock. Again, don't play and toy with them, but don't focus on them. Here's what we know from Scripture. Let's learn some Scripture this morning. Biblically speaking, Christian, you say, I'm a Christian. You cannot be possessed by devils. You cannot. You know why? The Holy Spirit of God is in you. But as a Christian, you can be oppressed, attacked, harassed by devils. You can definitely, in fact, Thursday night, as I was here, I was here really, really late, like really, really late, and just the last 30 minutes, I just felt like something, something weird, and, and I turned to the Lord, and even going home, I just almost had a little bit, like by, when I mean late, I mean like 2.15 a.m., and it was like, I just kind of got a little weird, and then turned that to the Lord, and He's powerful, and He's strong, and uh, He subsided that. They can't possess. They can't harass. They can't oppress. And they can't attack us. These folks that are brought to the Lord are possessed of devils. They're possessed. You say, how do you know that? Look at verse 16 again. Many were brought to him who were oppressed by devils, and he cast out the spirits. So they're more than oppressed. These are unbelievers who had actual demonic forces living in them. Now, I realize somebody may be watching online or someone sitting here this morning, and they're thinking, I sound really strange. All right, hang on. Before we jump to conclusions, let me sound more strange, okay? <laughs> As I, so let's focus on me. This is me. I hope this is true of you. Do y'all know that I have a soul and a spirit? I have a soul and spirit. My soul and spirit are housed in this body that you're looking at. It is housed in this body. My soul and spirit is not over there. My soul and spirit's not back there. My soul and spirit's not back at my office. My soul and spirit's not at home. My soul and spirit is in this. When I die, physical death is when my soul and spirit will leave behind my body. And then all will be left is a body. And y'all have to deal with that, right? So I have a soul and spirit housed here. but And I'm one. That's not two people. I'm not three people. I'm one person. But along with that, there are three other persons in this same body. And some of you are like, You literally, I think I'm about to walk out. Don't walk out. Listen to me. The The moment I became a Christian, God's Holy Spirit came and dwelled in me. But the New Testament also says that Christ says, I am in you and you're in me. So the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's in me, the Spirit of Christ is in me. Christ says he's in the Father and the Father is in him. And so if the Father's in him and Christ is in me... Any Christian in here who prays, really prays to God, you know, as you, you may have not thought of it, but now this is ringing true. Yes, there are four of us inside of you. There's me, God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and God the Father are right here in me. What's that purpose? The Lord Jesus Christ, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, God the Father. What they want to do is illuminate my mind, lighten my path, guide my way, listen carefully. They want to control. They want me to yield my will to them. That's the Christian life. More and more, yield my will to them so that ultimately they are controlling and using my body. Now, the enemy does the same thing. They want to come into a host... Rather than illuminate, enlighten, and guide a path, they want to darken that person's mind, keep them in the dark, keep them not aware of spiritual things. They want them to go deeper and deeper into darkness. Why? They want this person to yield control of their will so that that demonic force can use the body of its host. That's what they're after. And so one of the points I want to make here is these beings are real they're they're real you say i'm not a christian you may not be possessed but you are a candidate okay and you know i just told you there's much more to that but they want to darken your mind they're going to try right now if you're an unbeliever and you're listening to me they're trying to make you think about anything they're going to get you looking at a piece of lint Flying through the air. They're gonna to try to maybe get, oh, where's a fly? Or look how cute that little baby is, or look at that person's hairdo in front of you, how strange it looks. They're gonna to try to get you to think about anything but this. They have, a, they have an agenda. Listen carefully. The Bible gives us very ample, ample evidence. Listen, please. These beings, watch. So here we have angels, here we have demonic forces. There are rankings. These demonic forces, evil spirits, spiritual wickedness in high places, unclean spirits, they used to be angels, but they have fallen from the Lord. And we know that they are only half as many as this. One third of the angels followed Satan. So here, here's the thing. The Bible gives ample evidence that no matter the ranking of angels or demons, currently as we are in this current phase of life, the lowest ranking angels or demons are much more powerful, are far greater in their power than any human being. In fact, many of the strongest human beings put their energy together. You are no match for the lowest ranking angel or demons. Do you all know that in the Old Testament... The Old Testament it talks about one angel was sent on an assignment, and in one night he kills 185,000 Assyrian army soldiers. 185,000. We have 198,000 people that live in Anderson County, not counting the 30,000 live in the city. It's that the whole county. If you were to take our whole county, you know, Powdersville, Piedmont, Williams, all of our little out, put us all together, one little angel could wipe all of us out. We are no match. Jeff, why are you insisting on driving that point home? Look at verse 16 one more time. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. You are no match. The Lord, though, do you understand this? The Lord Jesus Christ with a word commands them. Not He doesn't get in a fight He doesn't get in a wrestling match. Literally with the authority of his words, and they must obey him. With just the authority, because I say so, come out. And they have to come out. And they obey him. Jesus is the Lord over all devils. It doesn't matter the ranks. We don't find that, oh, he had a hard time with a few of them because they were really strong. No, they know who the Lord is. If I'm not going there, but Mark chapter 1, verse 34 tells us that Jesus, as they were coming out, some of them were speaking to Christ and they were saying, We know who you are. Did you come to destroy us? You're the holy one of God. You're the Son of God. With his words only, Jesus not only makes them come out, he forbids them to speak. You be quiet. Remember, a few weeks ago, Christ doesn't want the message fully out yet of who he is, and he sure doesn't want it coming from some demonic forces. He makes them be quiet just by the power of his will. And you may be sitting here saying, how do they know who Jesus is? They may, this may be the first encounter with the human, physical, Jewish body, Jesus, but they know who the Christ is. They know who the Son of God is. They worshipped him in heaven before they followed Satan. So they know this is a case of spirit, small s, recognizing the spirit of the Son of God, capital S, and they start communicating, and he forbids them to speak. I'll write this down. Though they have chosen to follow Satan, they must ultimately submit to the Lord Jesus as their Lord. They have to submit to Christ as their Lord. We're we'll not going into this this morning. But I want to challenge you. If this makes you frightened, like, man, is this really going on around us? It is. Christian, they can harass and attack, cannot possess. If you have any fear in this, that's not from God, can I tell you, go read about five times over and over. Go read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, and here's what you'll find. Jesus Christ is at the right, so God the Father, Christ is at the right hand of God the Father. He's in the position of authority. All other authorities, all evil spirits, demonic forces, spiritual they're all under him. He is in a place of authority over them. Listen, of yourselves, you are no match, I am no match. But we are in Christ, and Christ is over all of them. With Christ, we have all authority over these beings. We don't pick fights. And now you're saying, man, this guy is strange. No, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. They, don't, they cannot withstand the authority that was within us as long as we are using our authority that is in the Lord. Again, don't go picking fights. I've seen knuckleheads on TV before do some stupid stuff, right? These televangelists, and they got shows in their living rooms, and they're binding Satan himself to light fixtures. Like, stop it, you know. But when you need it, call on the Lord. He has full authority. They cannot withstand. Number three. Now let's back up. and Now we're going to take a quick overview. Anyway, not quick, I lied. Uh, now we need to back up and draw our last point from all four verses because it pulls from those. Let's start in verse 15. Here's what we're looking for. Jesus is not only Lord over all devils. Jesus, very clearly, is Lord over all disease. Jesus is Lord over all disease. Look at verse 15. So he goes in and sees Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. What does Christ do? He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve. Did y'all see it? I realize, I'm, I realize I'm doing this three weeks in a row, so I'm not going to belabor this point. But again, what we find is the authority and the power of the Lord to heal completely. Please listen. Peter's mother-in-law did not take a turn. Lord, after you touched her, she really took a good turn. She did not take a turn. She was healed immediately. I mean, she went from fever and pain and suffering immediately to health and strength. And all of a sudden, she's back serving again just like that. I know how we're tempted to look at this, having heard a message about the leper and heard a message about the centurion servant who was paralyzed and in pain. Jesus heals both of these. I know how we look at this. Fever. Oh, minor miracle. Big miracle, big miracle. This one, minor miracle, small. Can I tell you something? It wasn't small to her. You don't need to think of this as a small miracle. Do not think of it that that way. I am afraid, and this is most of us in this room, you're in the category that I am currently. We're not sick. We're by and large healthy. And what I'm about to say is probably lost on those of us who are healthy, but others in here have battled sickness, and they have sickness, and particularly those that have a disease or those that have chronic sickness. Can I tell you, and if you pay attention, you'll see it too, just recently I have seen and heard how devastating sickness can be to a person's, just their soul and their spirit. The thought occurred to me, I've even put it in your notes. Sickness causes despair. I've seen it. Sickness, physical sickness, can cause despair. And I would say it causes even more despair, especially when it seems like there's no medicine to help or the medicine doesn't really help a lot. Or particularly, it causes despair when there's no hope for a cure and I realize there's cases of that right here this morning. And these people are right now thinking, absolutely, I really battle it. I don't know why the Lord doesn't just take this away. Can I encourage you, at least if just a little, look again at verse 16. Did you notice verse 16? So we're talking about Jesus is the Lord over all disease. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed as many as he could that were sick. No. It says, and he healed all who were sick. Jesus is literally showing us that he is Lord over all of the diseases. Not one illness was brought to him he couldn't handle. Not one injury. They're bringing injuries. They're bringing sickness, disease, illness. It doesn't matter. None were too difficult. None. I'm not familiar with that one. I don't know how to do that. No, he just heals all of them. In fact, MacArthur writes the following that I think is pretty insightful, and I believe it's actually accurate. He writes the following, for all practical purposes, we'll study the New Testament, Jesus banished sickness and death from Palestine during the course of his earthly ministry. Let that sink in. For all practical purposes, Jesus banished, guys, you understand, like eradicated sickness and death from Palestine during the course of his earthly ministry. Why does Christ do this? Obviously, it's to have compassion. The Lord has compassion on people. But beyond that, the Lord does this as a sign of who He is, an indication that He is the Messiah. Look at verse 17. You're in Matthew 8. Look at verse 17. So He heals all who were sick. And in Matthew immediately follows that phrase with this. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. "Quote: He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Hold your spot in Matthew, we'll be back. Go if you would, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Along with Psalm 22, the greatest prophetic passage, the greatest prophetic chapter in all of the Old Testament, again, projecting toward the future, is Isaiah 53. We could even say the end of Isaiah 52 into Isaiah 53. And this is where Matthew looks at the healings of Jesus on that night and other occasions, and he says it's a fulfillment, now we know this is verse 4, all right? The phrase that he pulls from is Matthew or, or Isaiah 53, verse 4, but I want to get a running start. Look at Isaiah 53, some 700 years before it's happened, 700 years before it happens, Isaiah is writing in past tense. You're going to hear this is, this sounds like he's talking about a historical event, but it's, future historical he's writing in past tense as though it's, it's just so sure to happen but it's going to be 700 years away verse one look at your bible 700 years in advance the bible writes the following who has believed and that's the big question who has believed i have who has believed what he has heard from us isaiah's writing who's believed the Eternity will tell who among us this morning has believed what Isaiah is writing to us. Again, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah 52 talks about the Lord, in essence, reading between the lines, rolling up his sleeves, revealing his arm. He's going to take action against Israel's enemies. Now Isaiah is asking, to whom is the arm? Who's seen the action and work of the Lord? Verse 2. This is a passage that is talking about the suffering servant of God. And so Matthew, I'm sorry, Isaiah is writing about the future suffering servant of God. Prophecy, verse 2. For he, the suffering servant, the Messiah to come, grew up before him, the Lord. How? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And now watch how he describes the suffering servant. Isaiah is predicting he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If I'm understanding that correctly, Isaiah is predicting you're not going to be able to tell physically that the Christ, the Son of God, is who he is by just looking how majestic and how beautiful of a form and it's so obvious. No, that's not the giveaway. Here's how you'll know who the Messiah is. Verse 3. He, again, future prophecy, he was despised and rejected. People leave him by men. He's despised, rejected. Here's your cues. A man of sorrows, pains, a man of sorrows, and acquainted, well acquainted, well aware, knows grief, sicknesses, illnesses. The verse continues. And as one from whom men hide their faces... Men hide their faces from him. He was despised. And we, Isaiah's talking about the nation of Israel, esteemed him not. We didn't lift him up as who he really is. We despise, we forsake. Now, the heart of the passage here is verses 4, 5, and 6. That's why we're going to read these. Matthew is quoting verse 4. Watch. 700 years in advance. Surely, surely, no doubt about it. All the evidence is so clear. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, we, the nation of Israel, we, he's carried our griefs. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted by God. That's what, yes. Why is that happening to him? God's doing it. Wait a minute, what about all this evidence? Oh, yes, the evidence is clear. It was clear and abundant that Jesus is a blessing to the nation. But somehow, in spite of all these healings and all the good that Jesus did for Israel while on earth, they're still going to come to this conclusion, oh, he's being smitten and stricken by God. He's done something. But Isaiah's going to tell us, verse 5, but they're wrong. They're deceived. Do you see it? Surely, absolutely, the evidence is clear. Jesus is a blessing to the nation of Israel. Yet, future, futuristic, they're going to esteem him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But the truth is in verse 5, he was pierced. Jesus was pierced in his left hand, in his right hand, in his side, in both feet. Why is he pierced? He's pierced, not stricken and smitten by God, because he's done something to deserve God's wrath. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the discipline. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, why is that man being wounded? With his wounds we are healed. Notice verse 6. All we, Isaiah is predicting, all we have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone here this morning, all we have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. How like sheep, just wandering off our own way, not God's way. What's the punishment for that? And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's as though we're standing back and we're looking 700 years into the future and Isaiah's standing there and we're like, okay, I see three crosses that one obviously was a robbing murderer, and that's a robbing murderer, and they're getting what they deserve. It's a little bit of a cruel punishment that Rome has come up with. Nevertheless, they took a life, and so their life's being taken. But what's the deal with that one in the middle? Why is he being wounded? Why is he being pierced? Why is he being crushed? Why, why is he having stripes put upon him? Oh, he, that's happening to him, the one in the middle, because we sin. What? Because we sin, he's paying a price. That's not fair. But that's the gospel. Would you look at verse 4? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Matthew's point out of this one verse is the following. Jesus' healings. That an example is what happened at Peter's house that night. Jesus' healings fulfill part of Isaiah's prophecy of signs to look for This will be how you will identify. This will validate who the Messiah really is. And that's what Matthew. Now, guys, this gets tricky, and I'm not going to go into all of it, okay? So it's verse 4 in Isaiah 700 years ago. Is it only talking about Jesus' earthly healings? Is verse 4 not talking about Jesus' work on the cross, taking our sickness and all upon him and the consequences of our sin? Oh, absolutely, it has to do with that. But what Matthew's point is, is that what happens, what verse 4 and application of that is that the earthly healings of Christ are going they're not separated from the cross in verse 5 what he's saying is they validate and they show the significance of the cross in the middle as compared to the other crosses that day and all the thousands of others through the Roman empire throughout history back in that time period the reason that one is significant is because that man had nothing he'd ever done wrong. All he had done was good. He took people's sicknesses, disease, and pain and healed them during life and that's why we know his is a significant. Nothing against the other two guys but that's the most significant death in the history of the world. Why? Evidence, he healed people. He did the things that the Old Testament predicted he had to do to be able to be the Messiah. One last thought before I can... Kind of come down the home stretch here. What Isaiah, if you will, I'm sorry. Make your way back to Matthew eight. Look at verse seventeen again. Matthew eight. So he heals all who were sick. In verse seventeen, this was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and bore our diseases. Do y'all know that these healings of Christ, they're a foretaste, a foretaste. Literally, here it is. There's a snapshot in time in a local area called Galilee that for a temporary period, probably about two years, they didn't have hospitals, but had they had hospitals, literally it was the equivalent of Jesus just completely clears out the hospitals. All as many people that are sick, they're being brought to him. He heals all of them. He eradicates sickness and disease. And that's a little foretaste of what is coming in the future of a future worldwide kingdom in which there will be no sickness or disease. And so put it all together. Here's what we have in Isaiah 53 and in Matthew 8, 17. Here's what we have. You say, Jeff, I know when Jesus was on the cross, he took our sin. He did. Guys, we don't understand what happened on the cross. He not only took our sin, he took all of sin's consequences all of it if you've ever had a stomach virus that's a result of humanity's sin if you've ever had cancer that's a result of humanity's sin if you've ever had a broken limb if you ever had blood gushing from you if you've ever had a heart attack or a stroke What I'm telling you, if you'll study this, what it's talking about is not just our sin is put on the Lord, but the consequences of all of our sin are bearing down on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Literally, he's paying for sin and all of its consequences. He, according to verse 17, took our illnesses and bore our diseases, and he paid for it on the cross. And so I'm back in Matthew 8, and I realize as I'm reading this this week, Jesus enters a house, mother in law sick, he heals her of a fever. That evening they bring demon-possessed people, he casts all those demons out. They bring many who are sick, he heals all the sick. And I come to the conclusion of our third point, Jesus is Lord over all disease. Do y'all understand how timely God's word is? Do you understand how current God's word is? As our country is just growing Increasingly fearful of the potential impact of a little one virus, and that's legit. I mean, something happened Monday because Tuesday I start getting all these emails about my future plans and how they're changing, right? And that's why we had to take 10 minutes this morning because we're very fearful of the potential of one virus. And yet here, Matthew, for three weeks in a row, has been showing us that Jesus is the Lord over all disease. There's a leper. Jesus heals the leper, not just of his leprosy, but all the effects, the past effects of leprosy on his body. Jesus heals a centurion, a Roman soldier, centurion, servant, who is gripped by pain and paralysis somehow... Jesus heals him with a word from another place, from a distance. Just get him to say the word. Jesus says the word. The man is healed instantly. Here he touches Peter's mother-in-law. She is healed. Many are brought to him. They're all healed. Jesus is Lord over all disease. That's the message in the third point. Jesus is Lord over all disease. All of it. And so as I close today, you see on your handout, how should we, in light of verse, I mean, 16 and 17, You ought to go home and say, no, wait a minute, self. In light of verse 16 and 17, since I'm a Christian, how should I respond to two things? Sickness, it's spreading. You all understand that? As we're standing here today, I'm standing here. Sickness and fear are spreading. How should we respond? How should we react? In the light of this passage, and so I want to quickly give you Five things, and I hope you would take these home this coming week and the coming days and say, you know what? We could put 10. I narrowed down to five, and I'm sure I've left off some very obvious ones. Would you write down five things that a Christian should respond in light of verses 16 and 17? Number one, can I encourage you to do this? Number one, give thanks. You're like, what? No, Jeff, I thought our notes were in light of the sickness and fear that's spreading around. You're right. Christians, give thanks for the day and the age that we live in. We live in a good time. Do you understand that if this were 500 years ago, it would be a lot worse than it is now? I understand. We don't know what's going to happen. I surely don't know what's going to happen, but I, I know this. I am thankful that if from now all through history in the back, from now back to the start of time, That we live in a very good time. We're still in the dark about a lot of things. There's a lot we don't know. Obviously, there's a lot we don't know about this potential of this particular virus. A lot we don't understand. But God, who knows all things, has shared a lot of information with us. I understand in the next 5, 10 years, a lot of things that the medical community thinks is a rock-solid principle is going to be exposed as not the truth. It always goes that way. We learn more and more, but we live in a good day. God has blessed us with a lot of good things You ought to start right there. Lord, if this was going to come, thank you that we live in the day that we live. You've shared your wisdom among us. Number two, what should a Christian do? A Christian should actively trust God's sovereignty. Actively trust. You ought to do it right now. Most of you in here right now, you're like, Jeff, I'm seriously not worried about it. You're probably a very Bible-educated person. Maybe you have a relationship with the Lord. You're walking with the Lord. There's in this room right now somebody there really tore up about all of this. And they're just, I mean, you cannot keep the TV off. You want the every five-minute update. Trust actively. Make it a point to actively trust in the sovereignty and the love of God. And you say, Jeff, what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. Take an attitude that God is completely sovereign over all things. So here's what that means. Nothing is happening that is out of God's control. Nothing is out of God's control. I'm going to go further. You may not like it. Nothing is happening without a purpose behind it. God has a purpose for this. And we can speculate, and I have my guesses. You may have yours. We don't fully know, but God has a purpose for this. In fact, we're going to go further than that. And here's what we need. By trusting in the sovereignty of God, here's what we're going to know. We're going to know this. This coronavirus thing, this COVID-19, it works out for our good. And you're like, what? It works out for my good. I know it does. I don't know how it does. I know this thing in the end, when we get an eternal perspective, we'll be able to look back and say, Man, aren't you glad God did that? You've got to have that attitude. Guys, this is God has not given us the spirit of fear. When we're afraid, that's me, that's you, that's not God. God's given us the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Peace. It's okay. God is sovereign. Yes, there's some crazy things happening. It, it may afflict one of us. It could take my life. That's fine. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. It's fine. I'm telling you. I promise you. It's fine. I'm not going to live it. Ah! But what if? Yeah, what if? It's okay. Y'all know this is especially needed in times of rampant, widespread fear. Christians, we have an opportunity to be salt and light. When the world is not trusting the Lord, we're trusting God's complete control and his love. He's not stopped loving. God loves and he's in control. We're going to keep trusting that. That's like salt. When the world is not living like we are, we're just actively choosing to trust God's sovereignty. This is key. Makes us different. Before I give you the next, very quickly, can I put, I'm going to offer, here's what I think we need, guys. Listen. I think we need courage. Like Jesus. I read when Jesus is in surrounded by sickness, Jesus isn't all fearful. We're supposed to be like Christ. We're not to be afraid. Be courageous like Christ. But listen to me. We need to couple this courage, this courage that Jesus has with some sensibility, some wisdom, and some caution that we read about in Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 just a couple of weeks ago when we're talking about a leper. If something is potentially dangerous and contagious, then you're going to have to be smart. It was literally in the Bible. Take these steps. What'd they do? You got to put them away and you got to stay over here. Jeff, what does that mean? We're going to be courageous like Christ. But at the same time, we're going to try to be wise and cautious like the Bible gives us a good example. So in other words, we're going to not just be all over each other all the time. We're going to limit our contact. If you're sick, stay home. But I got to be there. It'll all go to pot if I'm not there. No, it'll be okay. All right? Limit our contact. Stay home. Show some wisdom. Not fearful, but not foolish. Number three. How should Christians respond? This is one's a big one. And I think it flows from that second one. We must live and speak the gospel. We must live and speak the gospel in difficult times. Because it just, ladies and gentlemen, y'all know that it just may be that someone's out there Who up till now they refuse to listen to God, but they are now ready to listen to God because now they're thinking about the potential of what could happen in their own life or in the life of a loved loved one. So what I will say on this one: a biblically minded Christian. You may say, Jeff, you don't really need to say this. That's going to no. A biblically minded Christian realizes these lives, these current versions of life are short. They're just short. We're going to die. Y'all know why we're going to die, right? Because of sin. We know this. And you may say, "Come on, that don't we just need to skip that, just keep it, keep it positive." Oh, I am keeping it positive. Right? Here's salt and light. Here's how you live and speak the gospel. You live literally with this mindset. The world around us thinks the absolute worst thing that could happen is if a person dies. But if you're a Christian, what the world thinks is the worst possible conclusion for us is actually at that moment the best possible moment in our existence up until that point. Literally, death becomes the best possible moment. Write this down. A Christian needs to remember and rehearse and go over and over in our minds Physical death is only a door that transports us from this world that is mingled with some joy and some sorrow into a brand new kind of world, a new kind of existence that has no sorrow whatsoever and has infinite joy. What if we really understood that idea? That would be key. We understand, hey, wait, death is not the worst thing about our life. The Bible says death is the best thing. Literally, it's our transportation. Again, I'm looking at a door right there in a moment. Many of you are going to go out that door. Picture, this is this life. You say, hey, it's kind of nice, but this is the only life we've known. Some joy, but you're never far from sorrow. And some sorrow, and it seems to be lots of sorrow, but then some joy comes in. It is constantly weaving joy and sorrow, but we're going to leave this world, and we're going to go to a far better world. Infinite joy, no sorrow. What should Christians do? Give thanks. God, you've put us in a great day. Lord, I'm going to actively choose to trust your sovereignty. I'm going to choose to trust your love. Lord, I'm going to live and I'm going to share the gospel, the good news. And I'm going to be aware that what people think is the worst possible thing is actually going to be the best moment of my life. And then the most obvious is what should a Christian do? Pray. Why should Christians pray? Because only Christians can pray. Christians should pray because only Christians can pray. I'm afraid some Christians are acting like unbelievers, and here's what unbelievers may be doing this morning. Some are worrying, and others are planning. You say, planning's good. Planning's good. Remember what Jesus said? Ask. Plan. Don't worry. Plan. Be intelligent. Be wise. Be cautious. We could even say cautiously courageous. But don't worry. Literally ask. Jesus said ask. So, Christians, I want to encourage you just for a moment. You cannot, let's get our right mindset, we cannot make demands of God to protect. We can't make demands of God to heal we can't make demands of God to reveal anything. But what we can do is make requests. God very well may choose to protect and to reveal and to heal as his people are asking. I personally think this, this day, literally this day, because our president did have the wisdom to ask this to be a national day of prayer, I think this is a day for Christians To bind together, because you're the only ones that can actually talk to God. Uh, Unsaved people can try to talk to God. They're not going through Jesus Christ. You can only talk to God through Christ. They've rejected Jesus. If you've accepted Jesus as the Lord of demons, as the Lord of disease, as the Lord of all things, if you've accepted him, then you have an an avenue to talk to God through Christ. Then use your avenue. I think that this situation, literally today, is an opportunity for Christians around the country to see something happen. That's what I think. I'm not trying to sound sensational. But I know this. If God chooses, guys listen. God can dramatically halt the coronavirus or any other sickness if he chooses as a result of his people praying. I know that. I'm not saying he has to. I'm not saying he will. But have you prayed? Do you know that right now I'm looking at some people that are like, yep, yeah, that's good. I wrote that down. And honestly, in your heart, you know you have not had a face-to-face with God asking God to move and protect and heal and reveal and provide. Pray. Pray today. Pray fervently. Pray specifically. Pray confidently, confidently. And pray... Surrenderedly. Let me say it again, pray today, pray tomorrow, pray confidently, but pray surrenderedly, fervently, specifically, and directly to the Father. Pray. Would you bow your heads just for a moment, heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. Jesus is the Lord of disease and He's the Lord of devils. Disease submits to Him, devils submit to Him. I have to ask, have you surrendered to him? Listen, Jesus is the Lord. I want every person in here right now who's listening or at any point ever listening to this, ask yourself. The evidence from the Bible is clear. Jesus is the Lord of disease. He's the Lord over devils. But have I yielded? He is the Lord over me as well. Have I yielded to him as Lord? If you are sitting there saying there's never been a time in my life where I have received and invited the Lordship of Christ over me, can I ask, what are you waiting on? Like answer that. What are you waiting on? You don't want to wait till the next life. It is too late at that point you will find that Jesus is Lord and He's wrathful over your sin. But listen to me. If you've never done this, what you have time to do today, and you should do it now, What I'm, I, I prayed that the Lord would take even this message while we're talking about the Lordship of Christ, that God's Holy Spirit would drive that into your heart and your soul and that it would be ringing true in you. Yes, He is the Lord, but I've never invited His Lordship over my life until now then don't experience his lordship over you and your eternity as wrath against your sin. What you have an opportunity to do today, literally right where you're sitting, is to invite Christ to be your Lord. Proclaim him. And you don't even have to say the words out loud. Literally right where you're sitting, you talk to God. If you've never done this, don't wait. Talk to the Lord Jesus and say, I believe. I, The evidence is in, you are the Lord. And I invite you to be the Lord of my life. Receive his forgiveness. Remember what we read. Who has believed our report? The only way to go to heaven is by hearing the truth that is contained in Isaiah 53. That we've all gone astray. We've all sinned. But all of our sin and all of its consequences, pain, sorrow. Death, disease, injury, all of the pain was put on Christ and he paid for a whole world's sin as God the Father poured out his wrath on your sin on an innocent victim, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brought it, who came to this earth inviting sin to be put upon him. He has the ability to pay for it all and has. And so I want to invite you, because it's been paid then ask the Lord God would you forgive me of my sin and I receive your forgiveness through Christ's death on a cross for me and Christian you say Jeff he's my Lord I gotta ask let's go through them your resources what you own Peter very committed everything he has at the Lord's disposal is everything you have at the Lord's disposal. You say, I have received Jesus as my Lord. Then I've got to ask you, when you feel you're attacked and you feel like there's an enemy that is against you, you very well may be, have you learned to run to the Lord? He has authority over them. Run to Him. You say, I've taken Jesus as my Lord. Pastor Jeff, I've been really fearful lately of all the sickness, or I've been in some sickness. Have you turned to the Lord of the sickness? Have you turned to the one who's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind and said, I need you to refresh the whole way I think. I am turning this over to you. Have you asked Him? Those of you who have taken Christ as Lord, have you refreshed and rehearsed your faith? You've been encouraged. The day is coming. A kingdom is coming. No sorrow, no pain, no disease, no illness, no separation, no death. Because Christ took it all. Somebody here today, I know you battle with chronic pain and sickness. Would you just take some hope that Jesus will take our sorrows away? And then lastly you've taken Christ as your Lord, have you prayed? Have you prayed? And Will you pray? I want us to sing just a brief song and then we'll close in a word of prayer in recognition of our country being asked to have a day of prayer today. So if you would join me as we stand, we'll sing.